Today's episode brought to you by BossPods.com. Want a podcast like a boss? We've got the inside word on how to set up a podcast that's actually worth something. We've got the industry's best to show you how. BossPods.com. Podcast like a boss. From a creative point of view, do you remember where that kind of started for you? Like, you know, you're uh, an actor, but you're also a writer. I don't know why that's a but. You're an actor and you're a writer. Uh, I suppose I said but because it may not be as well known that you're a writer. Mm. But uh, yeah, so where that kind of process began for you and where you, when the first time that you kind of did it was where where you began that journey. It's so, it's so, such a tender memory. Um, And there are a few because you sort of, you reach these different little, you know, markers along the path, right? But I, I definitely, I definitely found this weird call to writing a lot earlier. And it was probably from a very, very young age as a child. I felt as though it was always, it was always this sense of, it's this imaginative connection to the world where the real world was always very confusing and it didn't always provide me with the circumstances that I wanted or liked. My life wasn't always, I guess, as magical as I wanted it to be. And there were only a few books that I could escape into that I felt like were the worlds that I really wanted to be in. And so I would just start writing the stories I think I wished I was living. And that started from a really young age. And I found it incredibly empowering and freeing. And it was my main source of joy and comfort and has been for pretty much my whole life. And that, so the initial storytelling was never really for anyone else, but almost just for me as a, you know, a strange, very youthful way of, of escapism. And I was at the same time dancing a lot. I was a ballet dancer and I really loved that, but it was very technical. It wasn't, it was not so much creative as it was this very physical, technical release. And I look back now and I see that was the seed with acting because it was this, I can't, I would always get this feedback. Like you can, yeah, you can, you can sort of, you can get the, the physicality of it somewhat, Anna, like I was never really just good enough, but every time they'd be like, but the expression is good. The look on your face is the right look, <laughs> you know, like wherever you go inside when you're dancing, that's, we want that place. And um, it wasn't until like many years later, after I'd graduated high school, started a few years of university doing psychology, that I realized that storytelling could be in my body, basically, and it could come out of my voice and it could come out of me as Anna, but also the embodiment of these other characters as well. And that that was honestly just one of those incredibly liberating experiences. And yet there's this been there's been this anchor, which is almost like a weird thorn in the side as well, of the writing that has never gone away. And I meet all these incredible actors that are like, I've known since I was five and all I want to do is act and be someone else and that there's this little voice inside every time I do a story or do a play or do a film that goes, I want to tell my story and it's Mm. selfish and it's rich and dense and strange and I've never been able to leave that behind. And so it's this. hmm. 
Do not touch that dial. You are in the right spot. This is coming up next, the Philosophically Irreverent podcast with Alastair Marks, which is the voice you are currently getting in your ear holes, bringing you a weekly dose of the silliest creatives in the world. Today's guest, my friends, has won the Heath Ledger Scholarship. She starred in Underbelly, Anzac Girls, and House Husbands, to name but a few. She's a wonderful playwright and just an all-round awesome human being. My guest this week on the podcastiest, rambliest, ramble, tamble, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, going around is Anna McGann. And before we jump into that interview, my friends, before we continue the interview, have you ever thought about making your own podcast? Perhaps you'd like to make a film? Maybe get some new recording equipment to record that album you've been talking about for a little while now. Well, you may have noticed the sound quality on Coming Up Next has certainly gone up to 11. And it's all thanks to the good people at Rode Microphones. Rode Microphones deliver you superior quality audio at an affordable price. So, you know, if you're looking to start your own podcast, perhaps like a boss via somewhere like bosspods.com, Maybe you're looking to record some music or shoot a film. Rode Microphones have got you covered. Check them out at rode.com. That's R-O-D-E dot com. And while you've got that computer open and firing, checking out Anna's IMDB profile or perhaps the Rode website, you might as well open up iTunes, search for Coming Up Next in the podcast section, hit the subscribe button and leave a review. Believe it or not, it really does help me to bring you an awesome show every week and to continue to bring you inspiring stories from some of the world's top creatives. And now, let's dive straight in and continue with the sillies with my guest this week, Anna McGann. What was the first thing you wrote? That's a great question. There's a lot. There are a lot of memories of young, younger stories. I remember, this is not the first thing I wrote, but I have a great memory of this one story. I'd write Christmas stories all the time. I was so, like, so in love with anything to do with magic. Um, and I still am. I just think it's, it's such a freeing form for us. We don't go there enough. But... I remember every Christmas I'd just get, oh, I'd get obsessed. I would read Christmas book after Christmas book and none of them were like getting to me the way I needed to. So I was like, I'm going to write the best Christmas story ever. And I wrote this story about this elf that lived inside a tree trunk and just his journey and the little house that he lived in and all of the elves living inside these trees. And so whenever I went into the garden, then I would just sit there and be like, elves live inside the trees. And it made me feel really Hmm. great. And I just, it was so it was just one of those uplifting stories. And then, of course, you go, you get older and you start to write You start to write where you're at. So you write darker stuff. <laughs> or, you know, I, you know, I had a really odd adolescence in the sense that I was, I was struggling with a lot of, of um, I had epilepsy. So I had this, I was struggling with physical sort of illness to do with my brain that I couldn't understand. And then I had mental illness as well and so all of these stories came out of this place of not understanding the human brain at all and all these stories about young people wrestling with their own brains came out and you know they were dark and then they'd get lighter and then you know I'd move into university and and these stories about love start to come and and thematically you can track the worlds in which you want to escape into Mm. You can look through back through a little writer's life and go, wow, 
I see them. And so what was high school like? Were you were you a drama kid? Were you someone who was always doing the plays? Were you writing the plays? Were you playing chess? Well, I was <laughs> – what was I? So my, like, greatest goal when I was in high school, I didn't really know myself. I just wanted to be an Olympian. I'm not very sportily inclined. Right. So this was this was a bit of a dream that was never going to really reach fruition. But my brothers were super sporty. And um, I was like, I'm going to find my sport. I'm going to do it. And so I was like trying every sport under the sun. Like I tried running and swimming and touch football and golf and fencing and rhythmic gymnastics and all this <laughs> stuff. And nothing stuck. I couldn't do anything. But I I didn't do drama. And that was the interesting thing. Didn't study it was way too shy just didn't know how to did debating and stuff like could could use my words and use my voice but I I just didn't feel like I was funny enough and I didn't really realize that vulnerability could be a key part of that as a craft um so I was you know while I while I was there it was I was very academic just focused on that focused on things sort of around that I guess and so coming out of high school you mentioned before that you did psychology. Mm. What was the kind of impetus for that? Well, I'd had this list. I'd had this list that I would. I didn't really know what to do at uni. I wanted to be a writer, but I was always told. Came from a very medical family. And they were like, "Well, that will be your. That will be your fun job. That'll you be need your a hobby. real job." Yeah. So I was like, "Go, go, go! I'll um, I'll get a real job." what am I going to do? And um, had everything on the list from like astronomer to journalist to doctor. I wanted to be a neurosurgeon, like everything that I'd, so, you know, you, you go where you, t- you dip your toe into and I'd, I'd um, maybe a nurse or a midwife. I wanted to do, it was either really <laughs> sort of oddly creative writery stuff or super sciencey stuff. I really loved science. And um, I remember I, started dating this boy as I graduated and I had journalism down and his mum was a psych- was a psychologist and she had a big chat to me about it one day and I just changed my mind and was like I'm gonna do psych that's what I'm gonna do I always feel like I need to tell this story because I feel like the fact that I even graduated from high school is like the effort of a whole lot of people but I was quite sick in year 12 and I was in hospital for a whole term of it I was anorexic and I just wasn't surviving and um I managed to get through the entirety of year 12 because all of these teachers would come and tutor me in hospital and oh, wow. my family would just were like, we're going to get her through this. And um, they they got me to a position where I was able to get good enough grades to just be able to go straight into this psych degree. And it was so remarkable. It was just so, I was so lucky. And not many, I know, I know that's not the normal story. So I, I went into sight and I adored it. I honestly just loved it so much. It was the perfect mix of like wrangling these ideas about humanity and playing with neuroscience. It was just the greatest. But at the same time, I was, it had always been my thing. I'd always said, you know, when I go to uni, because I wasn't allowed. I think I had tried to study drama just because I, I liked the literary part of it. And my parents were like, well, no, you can do that later if you want to do that. And um, they're not very controlled. They just didn't really get it at the time. And I didn't have any specific gifting in it. They were a bit, I think they were protecting me from my own <laughs> failings. I knew that once I was in uni, I was allowed to do amateur theatre and do plays and stuff. And so, you know, I'd done them in a primary school. Like I, th- I had loved it, even though I didn't pursue it. And so um, I joined the amateur theatre company. And it was that, it's that experience. I don't know if you've ever had that experience. That moment where you finally find your people. 
And I remember just being, we were in this weird political musical that we devised and um, I can't sing. I was a tree in it, literally, <laughs> like a fairy in a tree. So it was like magical as well. And um, I was so happy and I felt so happy. And it was from there that I was so in love with psych, but I started taking on drama subjects and I started doing these short films and I don't know, I felt limitless. So I secretly auditioned for acting school. (laughs) And what happened when you not so secretly got in? Well, that was the thing. There was this rule in the house because my parents had seen my plays and were like, oh my gosh, she's so bad. Like they, I really didn't get good feedback. I'd right. been doing these weird, intense plays. And you know, the young actors that haven't been trained or just a first trying out emotionality. I was just like doing these intense characters and they always had some weird sadistic sexual element to them. I just really full on stuff. And I was like 19 and... um. So my parents said, okay. Oh. And I'd auditioned for these bunch of acting schools, a few in Queensland and NIDA as well. And they were like, if you get into NIDA or QUT, because they knew that they were good ones, you can go. But if you don't, if you get into these other ones, like, please reconsider it. Um, and I think they just were like, she's not going to get in. We're going to be fine. And I got into QUT. Mm. For like years after that, they were like, we're just waiting for you to go back to psychology. Now you can't find two more supportive people in the entire world. But um, they were worried. Mm. And I suppose what was the uh, the trajectory then from there? You go through QUT, it's a three, mm. is that a three-year yes. three yes. program yes. as well? And come out of that and decide to uproot your life and move to Sydney to pursue your dream. It was really odd. I didn't I didn't really do that. I was the I was the ugly duckling throughout the whole of acting school. I didn't fit in and I didn't really want to. I Why not? I don't know. The the process didn't resonate with me and I wasn't good at it. I wasn't doing great. I wasn't excelling. I wasn't feeling like a good actor. And by the third year I'd skipped out of one of our third year final plays to go do the the Queensland Young Playwrights Program at Queensland Theatre Company. And I just did, I did that. No, I I did that and I did a devising thing with them. And so I just sort of, I took this other road where I just went, I almost wrote myself off, but also had refocused where I was like, I'm not cut out for it. I felt, I loved it, but I also just felt, misunderstood I guess so by the time we graduated I was like I'm not gonna get any work and I'd already applied to study playwriting somewhere else I was just sort of in that cycle of going okay what's next right I know that I want to do this and I was very very passionate about theatre at this point and being a theatre maker and being in that world and all of a sudden and no one no one had gone maybe once in first year someone had gone I think you can do this like I think you can do this but I didn't feel this sense of momentum and yet looking back now it's quite clear I had this restlessness and so I was constantly constantly making short films with people and auditioning and getting ahead of myself and by the time I graduated I just sort of all of a sudden got this work and I didn't really know how to process it I don't think i went straight from this I went into this straight into the Shakespeare professional Shakespeare for the first time and was filming 
in Sydney on my one day off each of the weeks and then the day it ended I flew down and I started underbelly so I didn't even make the decision to move to Sydney and I don't know if I would have had the courage to do it had I not been just like people in my class were so much braver than me they were so much more dedicated than me and so I feel really sheepish about it sometimes Mm. because I almost had to have the the drive thrown at me because I just didn't have the confidence Mm. it was confronting it's not an easy city and I didn't take to it that smoothly in the sense that it's excess, you know. You you don't get taught you get taught about being a struggling actor. You don't get taught about working. You get taught how to work, how to hold yourself, how to be a young woman in an industry full of people. I just expect I went in like like this young child that was like everyone is gonna be my friend and my mentor and everyone's going to protect me. And everyone's going to be on my side. And um, that's not true. And not to say that there's this dark, corruptive aspect to it. But I'd never been sexualized like that before. I'd never been exposed to drug use like that before. or, Or just sort of this carnal dismissing of morality. Mind you, humanity. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, and I, and I didn't really know any better either. I didn't really have this sort of moral compass that I could really firmly sit on and go, well, I know who I am and I know what I will and won't do. I really took my, I took my cues from other people and from the world around me, and I was, it was all very organic, and that's the process we'd been taught. Like, go where you feel to go, trust your impulses, don't you know, have the richest and most chaotic experience you can, and that will make you a better artist. And so I invited it in and. I was really excited to do Underbelly. I had no worries about the the nudity or the sexuality. I found it really a real challenge, but it was liberating too. I felt safe in that. That wasn't so much of the problem. The shooting of that wasn't a problem. Um, except that it did have repercussions in the rest of my life. And I didn't understand how it positioned me as this young woman that just suddenly descended into this industry. And all of a sudden you have this power but you don't really realize that you do and people will make it people will try and stop you from realizing that you have that power and bring something over you and I guess I um I came out of that experience really uncertain about how it would be received or what would happen and the the show itself I think was really beautiful and I think they did an amazing job and the work itself I'm proud of but I was terrified too and to suddenly be thrust into this perspective where I'd felt so odd and and out of my body and for so much of my life and I've always just been that awkward kid and still am and all of a sudden you are this representation of a youthful, seductive sexuality Um, and it's tempting to want to just embody that for a time and just be like, oh, maybe I have, wow, I've got agency, wow, I've got this, I've got this thing and all of a sudden your life just explodes in front of your eyes and you hurt somebody or you hurt yourself and you suddenly realize that it's not sustainable and somehow somewhere you've had a blind spot and something's gone terribly wrong and that's taken me a few years to work out so what was it what was the process like i suppose of of actually getting the gig with uh, on underbelly because you're playing a real life person who yeah. is um, this 16 year old prostitute mm. all based on 
a true story based on real events and as i said real people what was the what was the process like of getting the gig very very simple and unexpected i received the audition they brief you first because it does require nudity and sexuality they'll often they know that it will cut out a whole group of actors that choose not to do that and so I got the brief and this little question was asked. I'd only just signed with my agent. And they were like, well, would you be interested? And I said, you know what? Yes, I would. Yeah. How old were you when you did this? I would have been 21 or 22. 22. 22. Which doesn't feel, seem that young, but it, I, was, I think it was, a, it was young. I'm 28 now. But... <laughs> I got the brief and the audition was in Sydney, I remember. I, I flew down to do, do, to do it and a few other things were staying on my second cousin's couch. And my friend was staying with me. She was auditioning too. We were in the same class. We were about to start living together. It was just one of our one of the auditions, like one of the first auditions we do. And, mm. and at this stage, we were pretty, we were pretty stoked because it was underbelly. And they'd only had three seasons of that at that stage. And um, I remember I really love... I really loved the 1920s and the sort of vintage element of that. And I really enjoyed like, dressing up for it and preparing it. But I didn't think much of it when we went. We both did auditions on the same day. I think it was like, it was just at Mulliner's. It was one of those simple ones. And then it was, and I'd had a drink with my agent that night. And it was sort of our, one of our first introductory drinks. And I was like, wow, I did this audition. I'm excited. And he's like, don't, you just let them go. Like, you know, it's good that we good that we got you in the room. And um, I got a phone call at 8.30 the next morning and they just made the offer. Oh, wow. They just went, here you go. <laughs> <laughs> and I was in the same room as my friend and we just auditioned together and I didn't know what to tell her. It was this such this strange experience of going, well, I just, I just got it. And I wasn't allowed to tell anyone for about three months. It was quite early in the process. And so sort of sat on this thing for a few months and just thought about it. And then we started a few months later. It's incredible. It's, it's odd. It's incredible now I think back on it because I have not had that experience since. Mm. So you start from there going, oh, well, you're just here back in 24 hours. Yeah. Like, <laughs> three like. months later. Mm. <laughs> no, not at all. And so then going into this, because this would have been – your first big job Mm. what was the experience of the shoot like I mean you kind of mentioned that you were playing a highly sexualized character and Mm. there was this nudity involved but that you know it it all felt like it was being taken in great taste Um, how was the how was the shoot process for you it was it was like seven years of drama school crammed into a six-month shooting period. It was very intense. It was very fun. You fe- I'd never really felt so beautiful. And I know that's a really weird thing to say, but it's when you are embodying characters and other people are responsible for what you look like, I feel like that's worth mentioning because you don't feel like yourself. I never look like that. I'll never look like that again. That's It's something that was painted on me. It was dressed upon me and it... If, it was such a strange and feminine experience and that's not something I'd usually physically embody that much. It was so feminine and um, it gives you this confidence because mm. 
even if you're wearing nothing, you're still wearing this costume. It's this mask. It's this character. And once I'd found her, it was really, it was so enjoyable to to be her. She had no inhibitions. She was ruthless. She was a sociopath. Um, we have to we have to mention that. Um, <laughs> and I don't know if you've ever played a sociopath yourself, but it's it's extraordinary because Anna is very self conscious and and nervous and and doubting and all of those things. And Nellie Cameron is not. And um, it was so beautiful. I had some really amazing actors around me, like Jeremy Lindsay Taylor, who just, he mentored me. You know, we had to play lovers so early on. You know, he, he's sort of one of her first clients. Like she, she runs away from home. In reality, it was the age of 14, but they couldn't do that because of legal reasons. They mm. couldn't have a child being a prostitute on commercial television. So they made her 16. And um, she just, she's from a middle-class family and she just starts selling her body because for the thrill of it. And it wasn't that I'd, I didn't really attach that much to the whole concept. And I think this is why it sort of worked. I didn't attach, it, it was like all of those scenes, you know, she, it was like doing a dance. It felt like doing ballet. It felt like performing in that way. It didn't, I didn't really attach my, I didn't really grab hold of the sex side of it. It was more the, the posture of it, mm. um, the way she held herself, the way she moved through a space, the way she looked at people. And um, so for that, I guess I came out of the experience and the breasts were never the point. And and then it aired, and the whole point were the breasts. And that's not the fault of the show. I think the show handled it as well as they possibly could. It's it's the difference when you create something that for you is a piece of art. That for you, for me, I had I had embraced it in a very spiritual way, and then I would have men coming up to me on the street and saying saying things, or you know, friends of friends getting drunk and talking about how they've seen you've seen you topless and I didn't feel that exposed to me to be honest I don't feel that way I don't feel like I've ever shown my breasts my my naked person to someone that wasn't my partner I didn't feel like I exposed any part of me I felt like I was in character the whole time so how do you wrangle that how do you Mm. wrestle with that and I still feel that way but now I won't do nudity because it's not actually how it impacted me so much it didn't really change my relationship to my body but it impacts other people. It impacts the way that men viewed not only me, but women. And that matters. And I don't feel comfortable with that. I felt like I, there were these young men that had never been exposed to that. And I, I don't know, it, it comes all into that. Sorry to suddenly get political, but sorry. I'm not sorry. But I, <laughs> but I know we've just descended. Like, it's just, when I think about pornography, I I have to be honest, I don't agree with it. I don't agree with the way that that, has infiltrated us as a society and our relationships and our men. And I don't think it's, I think it's a bondage. I think it's really cruel because I don't think that we have the self-control that we want to give out, that we think that we have. Mm. And I think that it's an incredibly addictive and destructive thing for us all. And I'd never considered it like that, but now I sort of look at that and I go, is it fair to sort of place young men's minds in that position where they have no 
they have no choice but they're having this sexuality thrust in their face story i can i can go on about the art and the narrative and the incredible real life story and how it was necessary and it wasn't gratuitous but the reality that it's the reality is that it was there and they were taken to that place and i parted with that and i don't feel comfortable with that Mm. how did you as someone who had you said before that you'd had anorexia Mm. when you're in high school and you'd had to go to hospital yeah for, for treatment for that how did you as someone who had i'm not i'm i'm not sure what the what the core of that was but how did you kind of navigate that was that even an issue when it came to um being nude and having nudity within your art it's funny like i I th- I was I was better by then but I wasn't. And when people say that I guess as well they it's often the internal mindset that that takes a really long time to heal. And I can confidently say that that's there now. But it was very difficult at the time because I wasn't I wasn't sure there wasn't a stability there. And my weight fluctuated and when you're public, when you put your body in a public position like that, it becomes public conversation. And I was aware that would happen. And I put a rule in my heart and head that I was not going to let my illness come into this because I wanted to be, I didn't want to lose weight for the role and then have to sustain that. I just wanted to be me. And um, I remember when I started the role, I was very slight. And I remain slight, but, you know, your weight just fluctuates generally. And um, as the shoot went on, I started to get very, very anxious and very, very upset about it and didn't really know. I'd started really confident. And then I was like, maybe I'm, maybe I don't look good and started to get really concerned. And that all just, that only really, it really perpetuated after because at first you don't know what to do when you realize that you're public fodder. Like I'd never had that experience of having my works in such a way that people could just discuss it on the internet. And I remember I made the mistake so early of going onto the the Facebook page and they'd released that I was in it and they released a photo and it was this, that the trailer had come out or something and I was just so giddy with excitement that that, that could be happening. And um, this woman, I remember commenting going, oh, they've got this skinny bitch. And part of me was like, what? I'm too skinny? Like, what? And then sort of, you know, this, uh, the eating disorder in me probably went, oh, oh, that's, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. And then I remember it didn't hit for a few years after that, that um, this is just the weirdest story, I guess. But I, I remember I was doing house, house Husbands. It was probably the first or second season might have been this no it was first season and um so it was like a good year or two after that it had come out and a journalist called me up about house husbands and um this is long before I talked publicly about any of the eating stuff and I only talk about it now because I feel like it can impart healing and at this stage I'm not sure if I could have um but I'd never brought it up and somehow she must have known 
And she started, she turned the conversation to underbelly and to nudity and then to body shape and was like, well, have you ever had any eating issues? And I was like, oh, you know, like every other teenage girl, like backpedal, backpedal, let's not talk about this. And she sort of chased me down with it and was really asking a lot of questions. And I tried not to, I think I tried not to answer them anyway. It was this really odd conversation. And I remember that later that week, I was sitting in my car and I got a Google alert on my phone. It was like, oh, an article's come out. And um, it was this article and it was basically, I think the, the title of it was like Curvy Actress Bears All. And it was basically about how despite the fact I'd gained weight or something or I'd done, you know, I had no, I was confident in, in all this nudity and it was just, it was just, it just talked about weight and eating and nudity. And it was just this article in like the Sydney, um, the Sydney Telegraph or something like that. And, and in Melbourne and it's, it was just everywhere. And I just remember sitting in my car at midnight and sobbing and sobbing and sobbing and sobbing. And I'd never, it wasn't the worst thing. It wasn't hate. It wasn't trolling. It wasn't any of that crap, but it was for some reason, like my deepest and darkest insecurities and the thing that had almost killed me was suddenly this public thing that was just there and I'm not a big girl and yet my weight was up for discussion and I just could not believe it. And beautifully, that was around the same time that I started to experience just extraordinary healing and was really, I don't know, set free. And so it's it's sort of lovely to look back that back at that and go, that's okay. <laughs> mm. <laughs> How did you start to find that healing? Where was where did that come from? Was it was there something in you sort of just I guess taking responsibility and then kind of moving forward with your life, or was there uh, something literally that happened to you? I think we can talk about this stuff. I mean, I know we can, but. <laughs> it's it's it was big we don't have to no oh, wait it's good it's i think it's if you're okay with it i'm okay with it it's it was very very deep i think from the outside it would have looked like a normal 10-year healing process of over time you just slowly start to get better you go into remission you when you're five years clear of any bad behaviors or then you're deemed better. But eating disorders are a lot more complicated than that. And there was a definitive moment. It was deeply spiritual, which is why it's hard to talk about because you don't ever want to feel like you're imposing something. And I, I don't agree with that. But for me, it is the difference and it's the line between something that really would have killed me and that point of choosing life. And it was a, it was basically, it was in 2012 and it had a very, you know, I'm not, I'd, I'd been previously before that very, very open, but I had never really had any definitive spiritual experiences. And I had one, I had a really like profound experience and I came into this position of faith and that rocked me because I'd been very anti it before that. I, I was incredibly, um, yeah, just I was I really rejected and resisted any religious agenda or ideal. And um, 
And so I'd been really humbled in that and really shaken up because that which I'd really rejected suddenly accepted me. And um, I was in this position where I was sort of reading, I was reading scripture and I was reading um, and I was for the first time sort of contemplating a lot of stuff. And I had this revelation, I guess, of, I heard these words that your body is a temple and that houses God. And something really, really just, just, it was gentle and delicate happened where it was like I was wearing some, this heavy cloak or something and somebody just went, I'm just going to take that off. And um, the only way I can describe it is this, it was this reconciliation with the body where um, I guess I'd always seen the body as me. And I'd, you know, me, my soul and my body, one and the same. I had this angst and this frustration and this fear of it. And I punished it and I disciplined it and I berated it and I criticized it and I tried to make it, tried to control it and make it do what I wanted it to do. And this whole time, not really considering that it might hurt it or have an effect on it or make it, um, not trust me and it's almost as I realized as I acknowledged it as a holy thing as I know as I acknowledged it as sacred which is a very you know I think a lot of people can relate to that um it's like I had this revelation of it as something that was separate to me that I as if it was like an animal that I had abused or a sister or a friend and I hadn't listened to a word that it had said and I hadn't ever acknowledged it or ever thanked it or ever sat with it and loved it um I'd only ever abused it and called it horrible and it was it was just brutal because I suddenly had to sit with it and go I'm so sorry I'm so sorry and for the first time ever I just started to go I just started to sit and listen to it and go what do you need what do you want do you want to eat that okay do you want to exercise? No. Okay. You don't. Okay. You don't. All right. I won't. And I suddenly, it's like I had this friend that I'd never realized I'd had before and it was my body and I was able to go, I just want you to be everything you can be. And I'm going to take back this abuse. It's that act of repentance. We go, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm going to show you, I'm sorry. I'm going to show you how I can love you through my actions, just by loving you. And over this period of time, and it did take a while, it's like my body began to trust me again. And it started to realize that I wasn't going to deprive it. I wouldn't starve it for days at a time anymore. I wasn't going to hurt it. I wasn't going to do these things to it. I was really going to serve it. And as I learned how to serve it, everything changed. Just everything changed. Like, it, you know, your weight, you know, particularly when you have an eating disorder, your weight fluctuates because your body doesn't know what to do with itself. It's like, is she going to starve me for another two weeks? I'm going to retain everything that she gives me. And so all of a sudden this rhythm came into place and when you can find that I think with your body and now like I haven't weighed myself in years I don't diet I don't really have any weird routines like paleo and gym exercises like I I guess when I talk about this stuff it's inherently spiritual because I think it's just it's how you sit with yourself rather than like how you have this public actor body or whatever Mm. it's not even really about health I care about health but 
it's just more about making sure that it's this is my sister this is my friend it's my body this is my tent and i don't believe it's the tent forever i think it's it's temporary mm. and one day it will go back into the earth and it will rest there finally but it's it's like a it's like a horse that i'm riding it's something that's serving me and carrying me and i've got to honor that and i don't know i've never i've just experienced the most extraordinary freedom you said that you feel like your body is a temple and that god resides within Mm -hmm. that what now i assume your definition of god is not some man with a beard in the clouds because then the man with the beard in the clouds would be inside you (laughs) (laughs) well i'm a christian so it's not that but it's weird because it is a person so I know a lot of people talk about the universe and I used to as well. I used to be much more universal about this stuff very much. You know, God is everyone and everyone is God, but I don't anymore. It's more definitive. And when I think about the God inside of me, it's very much a, a Holy Spirit definition. So this idea of that, the fact that God takes residence in my heart, whatever that means as a concept. So this. It's more like an experience than a being it's a being it's this idea that your spirit and god's spirit have unity so when you partner with him and him being not gender specific um but it you do i do refer to him as him this idea that god can exist separate from me but god exists everywhere there's this omniscience but there's also this specific sense of going, I want to I want to see the world the way I believe God sees the world. I want to have an experience with the world and love the world the way I believe God loves the world. And that's what it means by having God inside is going, okay, you've cho- I've invited you in. I've chosen to see things the way you see things. I want to do things the way you you want things done with that, with peace. And I guess the spiritual theology of it is that when you say, okay, yes, God goes, all right, I'll give you my heart. We'll do this together. And the idea behind that is that the minute that you do that, things change. Things that weren't holy before become, or they actually, they probably were holy before. Things that weren't, I guess, sanctified or consecrated before suddenly become that. And so everything shifts and changes. So the minute that you go, okay, I'll take you in, then you become a temple. And you have to honor that, which is a, took me a while to get my head around too, that that, but it was almost automatic, like that your behavior might have to change, that I couldn't, I was a little bit chaotic. And I didn't really mind what wall I threw myself against and what impact it had. And over the past few years, that behavior's changed a lot because I guess I, for the first time, maybe this is growing older too. Like you just start to go, oh, my actions have consequences. Mm. Well, that's when you start to take responsibility for yourself and for everything that happens in your world and all the results that you have acquired. Yeah. And you stop blaming other people or external things for situations or um, things that you have or do yeah Um, and so do you think that when you had this kind of healing and this uh, spiritual aligning aligning or awakening 
that it started to impact the work that you were doing? Like you, it seemed as though at that point you just started working, like doing a lot of work and you also got the Heath Ledger scholarship. So it feels like there was this really kind of definitive moment where it's almost like in the healing, everything started to open up for you. It did, but it didn't feel causal. It felt as though from there, I guess I got more of a sense of, I got a, I got a more fatalistic sense of things, but it, for the first time it wasn't, it didn't feel like it had come from my own stuff. I felt like I was receiving something that I had to steward and I didn't necessarily de- deserve it. Um, but I knew I wanted to do it well. And what did happen, I think, is that I was forced to learn how to work from a place of healing. Because sometimes in acting, and I'm sure you've experienced this, it comes from a place of brokenness. You go, okay, where are my wounds? I'll use those. And I didn't feel like I needed to, wanted to do that anymore. That if I was going to be an actor, and I questioned that pretty much straight away. I was like, do I want to do this? I felt like if I had to do it, if I was compelled to do it, if and I wanted to do it and I was going to get work in it, it had to be free. And to be honest, for the first couple of years after that, it didn't feel like I was doing good work and it didn't feel like I was excelling or growing or having any momentum pick up. I felt slow and sluggish because I wasn't used to it. It wasn't as risky or wild. It felt like I was playing it safe and I didn't like it and it took me a couple of years to get into a rhythm and go no this is this is better (laughs) but the Heath Ledger scholarship was really confronting too because I was I was working at the time and I didn't have a lot of confidence in my craft and I was working with a couple of people that didn't have that much confidence in me either (laughs) and then I got the scholarship and was like I don't understand (laughs) but I remember the night before I remember the night before I prayed I had, well, this is the weirdest story. I'd prayed about it and I hadn't prayed about it ever. I hadn't prayed for it. I hadn't been like, God, please give me the Heath Ledger scholarship. It was like, <laughs> I got to this point. I was like, I don't even know if I'm supposed to do this. And I hadn't been a Christian for long, maybe a month. And um, didn't know what I was doing. I was like, okay. And I just said, okay, whatever you want to happen with this acting stuff, just let it happen. I don't really know what to do. And I knew sort of in my mind, I remember I'd been chatting to a friend about it and he'd been like, Oh, you would have heard by now if you'd got it because I knew I'd been shortlisted. And I went, oh, and I just, almost to let it go, I just said, can you just, whatever you want to do in that, I'm fine with it, just whatever. And I fell asleep praying that prayer and woke up at 8.30 the next morning, again, one of those experiences, to a phone call that just said, oh, we're flying you to America. Then I found out over there that I'd gotten it. And that was a really interesting experience too because it, I felt a responsibility in that. I felt like the very act of that was not now it's confirmed, you must continue in this craft, but more like your role in this industry, you've thought that your role in this industry was to receive and receive all of the guidance and all of the jobs and all of the accolades and all of the ideas. Um, But your responsibility is actually to give. And so whatever you receive, you have to give in that challenged me but that's sort of the mind I think that's the mindset shift that was most prominent Mm, it's kind of I mean that's something that you can carry into life you know Mm. I think a lot of people feel myself included up to a certain point in time that it is about taking and receiving but 
really one's uh, capacity is only in what they choose to give. Yeah. You can't really, you can't control what you receive or what others give to you, but you can control what you give. It's like that mindset of either sitting there with your hands like this. She's got her hands open. I've got my hands, sorry, forget that (laughs) we're not just having a conversation. I've got, I'm sitting there with my hands cupped open to the sky or the opposite of holding them out like this and you have infinite capacity, which is me putting my hands to the ground, facing them down, pouring them out. <laughs> and when you when your hands are facing down and you're pouring out, you have infinite capacity. You can just keep on giving. But if you're waiting there for somebody else to fill you, you're going to be let down. Mm. So what does, to just circle back a minute to the Heath Ledger scholarship, mm. what was the process... Is that like? Is it similar to auditioning for a show or anything like that? Way, but a bit more of an application process, or is there? What's that? It was different. It was, and it was early on as well. I didn't really know. Not many people had gotten it before that. I didn't really know the process. It was weird. They had weird wording in the in the on the website. You had to do an application. You had to pitch how you'd use the money, but there wasn't much much flexibility and. Like everyone was was just really going to go to LA and you just sort of do classes and be there. And um, I guess the biggest part was the showreel. You had to show you could what you had done. And so I spent quite a bit of time trying to edit together what I could. And I struggled in that. But the, I mean, my application was just sort of, I just did it, you know. It's one of those processes that you don't... So You know how you apply for some things? You're like, I'm doing this to win. Mm. <laughs> I'm, and I get the thing. <laughs> I just, With this, I just did it. And a little bit like underbelly, the, the expectation of people around me were like, well, yeah, go for it, Anna. You know, dip you, put yourself in the mix. You know, in a few years' time, maybe you'll have done enough work to really make an impact and maybe they'll take notice of you. And it wasn't people being not having belief in me. It was just them being realistic and... I sort of felt the same way. It was. It came as a um, really big surprise, but it was quite simple. You don't now. It's a little more complicated. They take them through these levels and push them, and I feel quite lucky that I didn't have to do that. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny though, in that uh, keeping your expectations low. It's sort of that tall poppy type thing, oh, isn't totally. it? Don't want to so Aussie. Don't want to let you get too big or too sort of. But even the mentality that. Well, maybe in a few years' time you'll be right for it. Yeah. You know, it's like, well, why not now? And you know, yeah. you certainly wouldn't have that attitude if you were in other industries applying for similar sort of opportunities, I suppose. Yeah. And so what impact does receiving something like that have for someone who is in your position? Well, it was profound because a little like the first and I to be honest. Sometimes I feel like my life looks as though I've taken these great leaps of faith and courage and I'd like it to be that way from now on. But for most of this stuff, I was literally flung into places that I didn't, wouldn't have gone had I not received these opportunities. And America is one of those. I just wouldn't have gone. I wouldn't have had the courage to go. Even though if I, even though I like to think I could have, I wouldn't have, I don't think. And so the, it opened this door up that I wasn't necessarily ready to walk through and it did take me a couple of years I couldn't work on it 
I couldn't take it straight away. I couldn't go, just go over there because I was shooting house husbands and we had a three-year contract. And I, so I'd have these six months off where I'd – so I did a few trips and I visited and was just so overwhelmed by L.A. But it, what the scholarship does is it, it's an opportunity and it opens, it opens these doors that otherwise it, they would be difficult to walk through. And I, it, I managed to sign with an agent that I really wanted because of that and meet people – but I was in such a straight, I remember I was particularly eccentric at this point in time. So I'd meet all these people and they'd be like, who is this girl? In what manner were you eccentric? I just, I remember one of my first trips to LA, I'd do all these meetings and I was in like, I just get a bit rebellious and I get a bit writery where I go, I don't like people doing telling me what to do. I'm not going to rock up to these auditions with heels and a miniskirt. I'm, screw you all. Um, and so I rock up to these meetings and like, in my NASA shirt with my knitting and I just sit in like I just sit in the waiting room knitting <laughs> and be like hey what up and um, they'd be like what uh, like you know because in LA the expectation is you rock up and you look your very best and you've never been fitter and you've never been hotter and you've never been more confident and you've got your whole resume ready and your headshot and um part of me goes should I have played the game but I'm sort of proud of little Anna that I didn't mm-hmm. I just didn't do it and I met these really interesting people I remember I met Oh, this extraordinary Indian director. I'm completely blanking on his name. Um, he directed Elizabeth. He's fantastic. And we had a meeting about one of his projects. And we just ended up sitting in this meeting for half an hour talking about spirituality. We didn't talk about the work at all. At the end, he was like, I don't think you're appropriate for this film. But it's been lovely. To <laughs> like, And I wasn't at all. Like, It was this completely different character, but he just stayed in this room and spoken to me for 30 minutes because we were two humans having a conversation. Mm. And I just, I loved that so much. And I went on these, um, this is a really strange thing. I've never told anybody this publicly before. And I just feel like I'm going to. And I hope this doesn't come across the wrong way. But I'd also, I felt like God had given me this little mission on one of my first trips to LA where he was like the equivalent of what you've been given by the Heath Ledger Scholarship. I'm going to show you people and you're going to give that amount of money away. And um, he was like, it's going to happen in LA. And I was like, what? What? But people in LA don't need money. This is how ignorant I was. So when I was there, I went on this like, I was going to these meetings, but I was on this great mission as well to like hear and see and find the right way to try and give it back and all these like crazy miraculous things happened it was such an adventure and it tested me so much because I didn't know I just all I wanted to do was be safe and hold on to it and not and go no no I got that that's mine I don't want to I don't want it. I need it. And it turns out I didn't need it. Like I, like the provision was such that, you know, I was so, I don't know. I felt so lucky during that. And still now, even in this, in these, these few years following all of that, like you were saying, like you kept working and I did, but I didn't know that I would keep working. And so I remember I'd go to America and then I found out and that whole experience happened. And then, I found out while I was over there that I'd gotten Anzac Girls, which is, you know, the favorite, my most favorite job. I don't know if that's good grammar. And, um, <laughs> but it was just such a, it was so poignant because I didn't know if I'd ever work, if I'd ever work again. 
Mm. And, and that process of trying to just let go, let go of the material crap. Let go of your expectations. Let go of this sense of entitlement and this sense of, well, I need to hold on to everything because I may never receive again. No, that's crap. Like there's a constant flow mm. and refilling. Takes a lot to trust. It does. It does. But other than, you know, the internal refining of the soul, the Heath Ledger Scholarship was... It was profound to answer your question and to honor the people that gave it to me. Like they, they allowed me into spaces that I didn't know I could enter. And now, only now, do I feel like I have a relationship with the US and a, and a work ethic for it and the right attitude and the right position to really go, I love this city. I love this industry. I could work in it and I long to work in it. And I met the most beautiful Australian artists and American artists through that. And they just, they nurture each other there. It's a beautiful place. Mm. I really, really love it. Long answer. Mm. Oh, it seems like gratitude and trust are the sort of things that are underpinning this portion of your adventure through an artistic <laughs> life. A bit, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're certainly um, challenging things to arrive at and to sustain Mm. um and i'm very grateful for your um transparency and for having this conversation with me i'm grateful for you listening to it (laughs) you're very patient (laughs) i uh i i feel like we could just keep talking about all this stuff for for a while but um i'm very conscious of not wanting to take up too much of your time so and again, thank you very much for uh, for inviting me into your home and, and giving me some snacks and tea. You I haven't uh, even eaten the snacks yet, Alistair. Hold on, hold on. Have a snack. Here's, a, here's, an, here's an audio cue. I end um, every conversation with the same question. And that question is, what makes you silly? Mm. <laughs> Eating with your mouth full can't be one of them. Um, uh, I just... My best way of expressing myself is through like non-English sounds, and unfortunately, just like <laughs> like that is that's probably the when you get those, you know that you're my friend. <laughs> well, I feel like I just got one. So. You did, yeah. just, mm, you know, you're getting a few. Mm. You've made it, Alice Denmark. You've I made have it. made it. Finally, take note, Hollywood. <laughs>